Welcome back to Nobody's Damsel. I'm your host, Ellie Coburn, and this is a cultural commentary podcast at the intersection of princess, purity, political, and pop culture. We're going to get started with some quick housekeeping per usual, but I'm going to keep it brief because I have an incredible guest here today that I am so excited to give as much talk time as possible to. Just a reminder that new episodes of Nobody's Damsel are released every Friday before 12 noon Pacific Standard Time and can be found almost anywhere podcasts are streamed, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. As always, I want to take a moment to elevate my genuine appreciation for everyone that has taken the time to rate the podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts and extend a special note of gratitude to those that took the time to write a five-star review. Nobody's Damsel is a heart project, and every single positive review is affirmation that there are, in fact, people out there who are invested in this community. Today, I have a five-star guest for you that I've known that I wanted to have on the podcast since the day that I met her. I'm not one for New Year's resolutions, but I am someone that very much values resiliency, and I think something about new beginnings and resiliency goes hand in hand. So there's nobody I'd rather talk about new beginnings and overcoming with than my amazing friend, Embo who is the embodiment of resilience, grit, and grace. Embo and I, not unlike all of my guests so far, connected through the world of Instagram via our friend Richard. Uh, Embo, like Richard, is a former foster youth, and I made a commitment last year to connect with former foster youth online to learn from their platforms and listen to their stories. As an adoptive mom, it's really important to me that I don't repeat the cycle of, of trauma, and I know that the only way to make sure that I don't do that is to be constantly connecting with individuals who have lived through the same system that my children are adopted from. What I did not expect in my learning and unlearning process is the countless friendships that I've since formed, among them this beautiful human. Uh, Embo, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today, and I know that my guests are going to be absolutely thrilled to listen to your story because you are so right up our alley. Let's get right into it. How are you? One, you are so sweet. Oh my gosh. I adore you. Um, And I'm so grateful to have met you via Instagram. It is insane because I have met some of my closest people via Instagram in the year of 2020. And I cannot believe it because it kind of sounds like crazy. Like, Richard I met and and Annie as well like Mm -hmm. I met them over Instagram and like three months later we're all in Colorado together I know I'm so jealous of that (laughs) it was amazing I love it I'm already I'm like where are we going next Um, you guys go to San Diego that's where (laughs) I know I told Richard but who even knows we're we're gonna make it happen I'm gonna make my way out there it's, I know it's happening. Know. You're you're on my list of people to <laughs> see this year. So yeah, you know where where you can stay, but it's a lot. It's a lot with the pandemic. It's a lot. But um, are you good? Are you well? It's the first week of January. Yes, I am well. It is currently as we are recording the first Monday in 2021, uh, and there's just something about Mondays uh, and new beginnings and yeah. um, just it's just different. And there is um. There's an expectancy. There's a hope, I think, that everyone collectively has for this year, mm-hmm. uh, which has not been the case. Um, and so there's just this collective hope. Like, I feel as if everyone has kind of looked to 2021 with such anticipation and such expectation. Um, and I was actually thinking about 
thinking about that today. And I really think that people are hopeful, like they're genuinely hopeful for 2021. Um, and so I'm excited for whatever this year brings. And uh, yeah, I'm doing really well. Good. I'm so glad to hear. And I totally agree on that front. Um, for me, I didn't know if it was just because I have kids and like all of our kids are now officially back to childcare as of now, <laughs> Monday, because it's funny because all my nanny friends and all my teacher friends are like, okay, back with the kids. And all my parent friends are like, yes, no more kids. <laughs> um, so there's like that shift. But we need, I have needed this break. I had the kids for two weeks and we were going stir crazy towards the end there. I told you yesterday when we were texting, I was like, oh my God, I just need to get to tomorrow because I have so much work work, but at least it's not like changing diapers work. Um, God bless, God bless the preschool teachers. God bless the, God bless, but it's it's not for me 24 <laughs> seven. So anyways, I didn't know if the January 4th Monday thing was just like me being a parent and needing to get my hands clean of, you know, to have some time on my hands or if it's like everybody's kind of like, Nope, it's not the new year until after that that hump of a holiday weekend. And so we're here, it's the fourth and we're recording. But yeah, I mean, I think that hopeful is really all that a lot of us can be after so much happened in 2020, right? There's, I mean, there's really nowhere to go but up at this point for a lot of us. And I know that you and I share the sentiment. Well, for me, it was more 2019, but I know that you and I share the sentiment that in the last couple of years, we've been going through our rock bottom and rising to our top. And all of that kind of comes with a, a, a level of distinct hopefulness. And yeah, talk a little bit about your 2020. You had a crazy year. I did have a crazy year. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, I actually had counseling this morning and <laughs> we're, we're down to like every, I know. So this is like round two. Let's go. Um, <laughs> totally kidding. We're, we're down to every, I mean, other month, every two months or so, I'll just kind of do maintenance, check in, um, update on my life, process anything if I need to process anything, that type of thing. And I was actually like, we were talking about 2020 and just my word for the year. And I, I'm one of those people that like, I will do everything in my power to like hate and like not be or do the cultural normative things, um, such as the word of the year. But here I am. I do the word of the year. Um, but uh, I don't do those basic words and not to harp on those basic words, but I am a words girl. Words matter so deeply to me and the meaning matters so deeply to me. Yeah, like I don't, I don't have that grace, patience, peace, kindness, love. Like uh, <laughs> it's just, it's like it's all very Hobby Lobby, like farmhouse suburban mom, like <laughs> to me. And I don't, I don't, I don't mess around with that. But I'm, yeah, um, and I've like my words are like unbridled. That was 2020's word. Wow. Um, and yeah, this year's word, and this is the earliest that I've ever gotten it I really like don't get it until like March or so um this year's word is arise and uh, I do too I'm very very excited just to see what happens but unbridled um man I really saw that come to fruition throughout all of 2020 uh, just from the way that I started 2020 which I'm sure this can be said for everyone is entirely um 
just mind-boggling. I was so different personally. I was within a different environment. I was uh, within a different uh, church, for that matter. I was within a different kind of uh, place in my healing, as far as healing from all of my childhood trauma and all of that. And um, this year has been, uh, or I guess last year now, wow, I'm still not used to that. Um, this yes, We're all going to be writing the, the 20, putting the one. <laughs> I know. But then again, I'm like, I feel like everyone's ready for it to be over that some people have probably just been writing 21, like all halfway the <laughs> second. Last yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, but I, I really, I felt like in a lot of ways was living with my head in the sand and I had no clue. Like I thought mm-hmm. that everything was clear and, uh, no, like my glasses were still foggy and um, it was still very hard to see outside. Things were still cloudy. And uh, just through an entire series of events from um, leaving the environment that I was in uh, and really kind of breaking free from uh, what people thought I should be, um, how people thought I should behave. And uh, this came at the intersection at the exact moment, um, not the exact moment, but at the a time of all of the racial reckoning and unrest um, that really just got amplified. Um, I really hate whenever people say like, you know, all the racial reckoning and, you know, blah, 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 that happened. I was like, no, 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 it's been happening. It just has not been amplified. Amen. It just got a microphone. And the only reason that it got a microphone is because of the pandemic. The only reason that so many have awoken is because we were all, I mean, we we're all at home. Like that, that, that is just how, I mean, that's how I believe that God um, really used that. It uh, was just, we mm-hmm. had to come to grips as a country. We had to come to grips with our sordid mm-hmm. history. Um, mm-hmm. And that just happened by way of the pandemic. And so I feel like a lot of 2020, both at a personal, collective, um, politically, emotionally, um, communally, like at every single level, uh, there has been this whole idea of like, we're pulling back the curtains and we're looking at everything. Right. Like, we're, we're looking at everything. So we're looking was- at the house plans, the floor plans. We're trying to see, um, and, and we're not even trying to, but we had no choice but to see and question, like, why do we believe what, what we believe? Yeah. Who t- like who told us that? Uh, like, why do we even believe it in the first place? Like, is it actually true? Or is this, am I just going along with what I know? Is just this the status quo? Have I actually asked hard questions? Have I sacrificed my comfort for anything? Like, there there have been hard mm-hmm. things that have been asked that it's really just been this excavating, right, um, of so, so, yeah. so much. Yeah. Um, and so just at all the different levels, um, and it's really like, the there are so many churches that did the whole like we're, you know whenever you, you you're praying for the beginning of the year in 2020 that did the whole we're gonna we're praying to see 2020 um yeah. and all of 2020 and blah 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 and I'm like I genuinely believe that the Lord answered that prayer like for all the churches oh, that did sermon series all that like super, it's so funny because that's kind of like when the Lord when they were praying for Trump and then they got by and I'm like I don't know maybe yeah. the Lord did answer that prayer. Listen, uh, I mean, you never know. You <laughs> never know. And but I I just I'm like I I do believe that that prayer was answered, um just not in the way that people would have liked it to be answered. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, there there's a lot to be said and a lot to be had with that. Um, and I I just look at America so sadly. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yes, I don't even know. 2020. It was. So, that, so you're talking yeah. about when you talk about, you know, coming to terms with moving away from the situation that you were in, you're talking about your living environment, right? which is obviously so integral to who we are. We can only really function well in an environment where we're living and resting in places of peace. And I know that that, um, you know, it was hard for you to to find life and rest in, in the environment that you were in for different reasons. And I think that you know, I share that sentiment with my own biological family. <laughs> um, that's why we do not live together and why, I mean, obviously I'm an adult. That's why we don't live together. But even so, that's why I left home at 18 and we just function operationally with space. Like we are, you know, that's just how we we do. And so I, I can relate to that on a micro level, but when things are excavated and when tensions and emotions are high, especially in communities and, and, you know, in community with people who value kind of the status quo, it is hard to feel like there's a safe space to unpack those emotions, right? Yeah, most definitely. Most, yes, yes. You just described, yes, 2020. Uh, Right. And so I know that you talk about you know, transitioning into a new faith community. You know that for me, I, I do identify as agnostic, um, but I'm culturally Christian. I grew up Christian. I can, you know, I can, I was a Bible teacher. I know how to have these conversations. And also I'm very, you know, with God, we're very much in the in flux. I'm definitely not an unbeliever. I'm just, he's so, he, they, she, whatever is so unboxed to me. Um, and so like out of control grand to me that it's almost like my belief is so strong in the divine that I don't even know how to categorize the divine at this point in my faith walk. But for you, the church has been really important and really integral to um, your process. I don't want to say your healing process or your unhealing process, but just your process as like becoming who you are today. Um, what has that looked like for you? And like with the change, um, where are you at now with the church? Yes. So church, um, church has been awesome. I, I feel like that, and I've thought it was awesome from the get go. I, um, really began my relationship with Jesus. Um, I, which I'm just going to preface this. I really hate those culturally, like Christianese phrases. I think they're gross. I love it. I'm they're so nasty. And they I mean, it sounds like a cult whenever you're talking to someone like it's just it's so unless you do not know what it means. There's like there's no no level of understanding. It's just it's gross. It's cliche. Like, we don't have to say it that way. It's just like, Mm. so um, I so when yes, whenever I really um, begin my relationship with Christ, I think it really came to fruition. And I saw it because the people within my youth group, it was whenever I was 13 or so 12, 13, the people within my youth group, the adults within my youth group, um, they like tangibly uh, and physically like were the embodiment of Jesus to me um, just by their actions. Um, and I, I feel like that is where I saw Christ. Um, in in the and then, 
yeah, in the action. Mm-hmm. Um, and just within the consistency of the, I mean, many adults who are still in my life today, 10 years plus later. And um, just the constant care, um, and it's not even care for uh, the interest of the self, but care literally just because of me. Like, they just care about me because it's me and they love me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has not always been the case. Um, and within Jesus also, I also found that he brought meaning to my suffering. Um, and I just have mm-hmm. to believe that there is, there has to be some sort of reason um, that that I was entrusted with the life that I was entrusted with. Um, and that that has to mm-hmm. matter. That has to mean something. That has to have some sort of transformation or something that occurs. And so I, uh, that's really just why I never stood stagnant. I never, um, never really uh, chose to stay complacent um, or be complacent. It's just, it's not, it is not in my DNA. I'm not wired that way at all. Because you have overcome every statistic that there is in the domain of the life that you were handed versus the life that you live and that you've made for yourself. And so you're a walking testament to not being complacent um, but I, I know, and, and Richard shares this sentiment. I hate to bring it. I'm like, Richard, this is not your, your duetted in this. Um, all good. um, but I, I, I know that he talks about like survivor's guilt. Um, do you have some of that as well with, I think he refers to it through the sense of like, you know, he has overcome and made a, a successful life for himself post foster care, being a foster youth. What do you ever think that way? I would say yes, but I think this way more so of, um, I feel like, especially because I entered this whole foster care adoption world also in 2020. Um, and, uh, yeah. the, the thing that I've come to realize is that there's this level of exceptionalism that has happened. Um, and that at times does still happen with me and with other former foster youth who are successful and who talk about it on social media, publicly, whatever. And, um, more so than really honoring and being celebratory of all kids in care, like it's, there's, there's a way that I feel like my story can be highlighted. My life can be highlighted um, as a way to entice and um, just really get people which to foster, which I think is wonderful. I think that it should. Um, but I mm. do very much try to steer away from this idea of exceptionalism because like, yes, all of these things happen to me and yes, I'm successful. However, there are a thousand plus, I mean, 400,000 little embos that could be successful if they have an adult who steps in. Mm. Like the thing okay. that my youth group okay. did so, so, so well, and not my youth group, but my youth group and the adults in my life, like they did not take the stair, like they, they didn't take the stage. They illuminated the staircase for me to get mm. to the stage. And mm-hmm. that did Go you ahead. see, the, I just to say, did you see the community care thing that I was posting about on my stories this week? Yes, um, I did. Yeah, that's what this is reminding me of. 
Yes, very much so. I I actually thought of that whenever I saw it. Um, and so just just this whole like you know like how did you do it and blah blah blah. Like yes, I did it, and I will talk about that all day long. Um, but I am I am not I'm not super special. Um, and I'm not saying that at like my core, I'm saying like in the grand scheme of foster care, I'm not super special. Um, because they're really like it. And yes, I'm exceptional. I like, I wholeheartedly believe that, but I am not the only. Yeah, I do believe that you're exceptional. I, I get to say that because I'm your friend, but I will say that with a with exceptionalism unfortunately because the like the english language and language in gen, general is so binary and so you know it's it unfortunately it can it, you know unintentionally become something that it doesn't mean because every word means something slightly different to different people right and i think that exceptionalism through the for some people it is a in a binary sense this thing of like only some people can be exceptional but in my mind, and it, it sounds like in your mind too, many people can be exceptional um, when given the opportunity to do so. And yeah. I love hearing about the um, power of community care from someone who has literally lived through the impact of community care on their life. Because I think that there can be, uh, unfortunately, there is an argument made against community care from those who don't want to do the work and from those who want to be complacent in their communities to suggest that these individuals are not capable of becoming, um, even in the event that they're given you know, all the care in the world, but you would argue, and I would argue that that's the exact opposite, right? Right. And that, um, that with community care, everyone or not everyone, but many, many, many people can be exceptional. And it's probably really hard to see people who, you know, have such potential, never get the community care that they need to reach the potential that you've reached. Oh, yes, yes, yes to a T. Um, and I, I I just can't even mm, go ahead. I, um, have not shared about this publicly yet and I'm going to write a post about it, but I went to the dentist on, um, December 23rd and I haven't been in a year or so. Um, whenever you turn 21, your dental insurance stops. And so I'm now like paying for it out of pocket, whatever that's, you know, just that's neither here nor there. And um, I went in to get checked up and all that stuff. And they had to do x-rays um, just because it had been a significant amount of time that had passed since then and all that fun stuff. And I um, got my teeth checked out by the dentist. And it turns out that I need a few crowns um, and one root canal more than likely, they said. And so they're like, it's very close to the nerve and blah, 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 all this stuff. And the dentist is in my mouth and he's telling me all of this and I'm fighting back tears. And I I just, I wait until he goes out and the dental hygienist, she, um, she comes in and she starts cleaning my teeth. And I, I mean, all of the tears start falling. And I, man, I am, um, I was like, can I have a tissue, please? And she gave me a tissue. And I just literally, I sat there and cried for maybe five minutes. Um, and it was just silent tears. And I really um, just sat there just thinking like no one took me to the dentist whenever I was younger. 
Mm. Like no one took me to the dentist when I was younger. Like this, Mm -hmm. this actually could have been prevented. Um, but here we are. Uh, and I, um, the dental hygienist, she, you know, she tried to comfort me and uh, all that fun stuff. And I was like, I just, I need another tissue and then, you know, you can finish and I'll be okay. And I went to um, just get the cost and all that kind of stuff for my um, root canal. And it's like $1,600. And I, um, which I'm totally not even surprised. The cost is not the thing, but I really, I I realized um, a few things. The first, um, I I knew I wasn't crying about the fact that I had to get a root canal. Like, I mean, yes, that is something to cry about, but I'm not like I'm generally not a crier. That's just not my not my wiring. Um, And so whenever I cry about something, I know that it is like deep. And so I really had to sit with that. uh, And I um, sat with that and I realized that I will forever be paying for the consequences of someone's action or lack of action in my life. as a child. Mm. And, um, that's, I mean, that is everyone like that is a common experience. Has it been verbalized for some people? Probably not. Mm. Um, but it, but it's a, it's an experience. And, um, the, the, this whole, like what you were just talking about just reminded me of the story really, uh, just because it's, it is a, um, I, I have a really pretty smile. Like you would never you know. Have I, have, <laughs> like, I love my smile. I always have. People have always talked about it. So I like I brush my teeth like obsessively. Yeah, obsessively. You have a great smile. Um, and you would you would never know that I need crowns and I need a root canal and you know all this fun stuff. But uh, there there is this this level of. Like it, it's, it's not the cost. It's not the fact that I need to get a root canal. It's not the fact that I have to get several crowns. It's the neglect. Yeah. It's the fact that you're having to experience trauma in a basic everyday environment that had someone been your community advocate, been your community caregiver um, in the absence of, you know, biological family, you wouldn't have to experience trauma as an adult doing a basic task that every adult has to do. And I mean, it's, it's just really, really hard to understand for me. What I don't understand is like the numbers of it, because if you look at the numbers, I I was doing some number crunching and some, some statistical analysis recently before teaching um, a zoom class. Uh, Like I had a lot of people asking to do something very basic on becoming a foster parent. Right. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'll like, I'll run some numbers. So I have something tangible to give to these potential foster parents. And it was in the running of the numbers that I was just haunted because I knew, I knew this already. I think it's common knowledge, but I just, I didn't really understand. I hadn't seen the numbers in writing. And the reason why it upset me was that there's this huge disconnect. There's this huge, it's not consistent because there are millions and millions of Americans, right? Millions of whom are very potentially great community care advocates. They could be amazing foster parents. They could be that youth group mentor that you're talking about. Um, They could serve this population in any capacity. 
And then while this is a significant number, it's not nearly to the degree that there are millions and millions of Americans who are capable of aiding it. There are a couple hundred thousand, you know, children entering care every year. So how is it that the numbers don't compute when the reality is, is that if we have millions of people who are more than capable of caring for these individuals, then the couple hundred thousand individuals who are experiencing care should be inconsequential to there being enough community to support them, if that makes sense. There's no reason why a foster parent, or sorry, why a foster child should go uncared for when the numbers are so incompatible. It's not like there's, you know, millions of foster youth and a couple hundred thousand capable of Americans. It's the opposite. And so I think that for me, what's so hard is to know that there are enough people times millions to to step into these roles. But yet this country breeds so much apathy that it's just complacent and suffering. Does that make sense? Like, does I don't know. That was percent. Yes. It just doesn't make sense. Like, how do you have millions of people who are more than capable of stepping into this role of making sure that, you know, something as simple as a dentist appointment is happening for a child in, you know, I don't understand how it happens that these we are bred in America to believe that we can't do anything about these issues, but they're not issues for lack of resource. We have the resources. They're just issues for lack of caring. Yes. Uh, We care after the fact, after they become a success story, after it is a blindside type, you know, like movie, instant family type. uh, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Holy shit. The blindside story used to be when I was growing up and when I was washed in like the white evangelical saviorism culture, like one of my favorite movies. Now that movie absolutely disgusts me. Um, And it's sad because it had a lot of potential, but the reality is, is that they centered a white woman around the narrative. Correct. Yes. Um, I feel the same. Always felt the same. It was it was very interesting to note because one thing that was reflective um, within that movie that is reflective of my uh, prior environment um, is that they, um, they being Mrs. and Mr. Tui, I think was their name, They expected um, and had asked of Michael to do all of these changes without them ever changing anything. Right. I, um, yeah, that whole movie threw me for a huge loop. I, I honestly don't, it's weird because it threw me for a loop. Just like, do you know Kisses from Katie? Uh, yes, that book. Written, so. It was that book written by the Ugandan missionary who went over to Uganda at like oh, the right yes. age of eighteen and adopted like twelve daughters, and so she lives over there with her husband and their biological kids now at this point. But at the time, she wrote Kisses from Katie and another book as well that she got. You know, she became very wealthy off of these New York Times bestselling books, centering herself in the na- in the narrative of saviorism. Um, and adopting, you know, a dozen children, literally a a dozen children in the process. And it's weird. The reason why I bring it up or, you know, compare it to the blind side is because that for me, again, growing up, 
was something that I looked at and said, like, that's so amazing because the church was telling me that that was amazing. The church was the one who it was actually a church leader who got me that book um, and said, you should read this. This reminds me of you. And it fueled this narrative in my head that in my deconstruction process, that was another one that I was just like, wow, looking back on that now, those are that's disgusting. But at the time, it was the opposite of. And it's just so weird to see that shift in narrative. Oh, yes. I, I Something that just throws me for a loop is um, with the church today. It's kind of like, I just laugh because it's a little bit hypocritical. Not even a little bit. It's straight up as hypocritical. Um, but just how we can go across the world and, I mean, Let's quote unquote, this is another one of those phrases I despise, love on, um, you know, these orphans, um, these oh children, yeah. these families, these communities, whatever, um, of people who do not, who don't look like us, people who are black and um, people who are African and, um, but then not love our black and brown neighbors across the street not in our own backyard right exactly like like how 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 is it that we can go to a entirely different continent and i mean just celebrate honor um and really try to quote unquote again love on these people but not do the same exactly where we are like we have no business going out until like our inner like our backyard our neighborhood our cities are all of that is taken care of uh and it's it's so um which that was a very broad statement but what what i essentially am saying like if you're if you're not loving the very people that you are trying to go serve right where you are you have no business going over there 100% and especially if you're going as far as to criminalize the people in your own backyard and to make monsters of the people in your own backyard and that does include your neighbors at the border you know because for me here in San Diego that's especially relevant um although it's you know there are neighbors literally across the street for me but in terms of like the border is 10 minutes away And it's the same people who are going and doing mission trips 5,000 miles away who are calling the people at the border thugs and criminals. And it's just really hard to understand how that computes. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that's that's really, I feel like, has been um, a a theme um, of just not understanding how one thing can be one thing this way, but then change the circumstances to where it affects us personally. And then it's entirely different thing. It's entirely different approach, entirely different um, outlook, aspect, everything. And I really just think that it has been me like looking at all these holes and seeing like, golly, like church, we have messed up, (laughs) like genuinely, we've messed up so terribly so. And uh, I, I just believe just throughout all of 2020 and all that, um, that that entire year that the church has lost a generation um, because everything that they they preach, everything that is, um, and keep in mind, I'm speaking for, for the broad, like specifically white evangelical church, um, oh, yeah. but everything that is being um, spoken about on stage and God loves everyone and God loves us all in these emotive experiences of worship and um all of that, like just 
that that is not actually what is being put into action. Um, that, that, that like people have seen that, um, and younger people specifically Gen Z, um, I probably the latter half of millennials have seen that, that like everything is smoke screens. Like it's, it's not even, it's, it's not even real. It's real to the extent, um, that, the their comfort goes to their personal comfort goes to uh, but beyond that like all bets are off and so i i feel like that it has been a lot of that for me where i have uh, just seen the um the people of uh, the white evangelical church kind of um just not be who they are and disentangling myself from it a little bit and um really just trying to assess like how I can be a Christian, but not be connected to that. Um, and like, is that even possible? And just going through all these different things of like, I, I want to be the, the redemptive Christian. Um, and I, I want to be the redemptive Christian for someone who looks at Christianity and thinks like, what in the actual heck is happening right now like just whenever they look at the church um I I I want go ahead no I was just gonna feed into that because I'd love to hear your take on it I I call it this every day but it's really interesting hearing you as a black woman call it the white evangelical church so you use that keyword there you didn't just say evangelical church you said white evangelical church and it, that's a really powerful perception, again, coming from you, who has experienced the white evangelical church through the lens of a Black individual. What has that specific process been like for you? And how did you even end up in the white evangelical church, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, that, I mean, that was just straight up out of chance. Like, it wasn't even a, um, was not even an, an intentional decision. I was just invited to church by a friend. Um, and, uh, I have really, I've just realized, um, that even just throughout 2020, like people's beliefs were truly shown. Um, and I was like, there is absolutely no possible way that I can, um, that, that, that I can exist with this. Like you, you can't state that you believe X, Y, and Z, um, about black people. Um, but then say that, oh, but that, that, that doesn't apply to you. I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, (laughs) well, well, if it doesn't apply to me, then what does that say for, I mean, my future children? What does that say for my brother? What does that say for my mother? Like there, there's no, there's no selective, like there cannot be the selective, like acceptance, um, of, blackness and of black people like it's not enough to just invite black people or to have black people at your church if they're not on leadership if they're not um i mean reflected within um every aspect of the church whether that be through worship or um just within the even like the single like authors that you're reading from of the bible studies that that are being done and all that kind of stuff uh it it is it's, it's not okay. Um, it's just, it's not okay. And it is a, um, like, I feel like there's also this level of people did not realize that I was black 
until 2020. Like it's like, yeah, there's something that I knew, but like, you know, I, I don't see color. I'm like, if you mother do not tell me that again, I don't even cuss. Um, but like, I'm like, if you, if you like, if you actually say like, I don't see color, I'm like, I will laugh in your face. And I have, I, I did that to someone actually. And, um, because I'm like, do you, do you not see blue? Do you not see red? Like, even if you're colorblind, right. you, you still see color. So to say that you're not seeing the outermost, like, reflective part of me means that you do not see me, period. And I am not going to allow myself or even, like, um, I'm, I'm not going to compromise myself. I am not going to sit at tables that have no intention of serving me. Mm. So you are someone who was in the white evangelical church from early adolescence. At what point do you ever remember like repressing racism or at what point did you realize, oh man, this might be a racist environment? I really think, um, I think the, the differences for me, like I kind of categorized it as, um, people rather than the environment it took me like because they're they're in the various churches and whatnot I've been in like it hasn't been um it has not been the environment uh it's more so been the people mm-hmm. um not to say that people are reflective of the environment because they are however it is like one was drastically different than the other um but mm-hmm. I remember in seventh grade Yes, I believe seventh or eighth grade, um, whenever Trayvon Martin was shot and killed. And oh, I yeah. remember going to school. I remember going to church. I have two older brothers who are giant. Um, I'm six feet tall. My oldest brother is six eight. My other brother is six four. Like I and he was wearing a hoodie, all of that stuff. And I I just I remember um just hearing about that, like trying to make sense of it and process it. And I remember going to school. I remember going to church and no one was talking about it. Mm. And I was so confused. I'm like, this, like, it does not make sense to me. How is no one talking about this right now? And um, that, that is where I really began to see various, um, like, holes and differences and things of like, I live way differently. Like, I, I do not wear hoods. I and I don't like my mm. brothers. I don't. I they they I told I tell them like don't wear hoods. Um, and I if I'm ever if I have to wear something that it like has to cover because I'm cold or whatever, then I make sure that some part of my skin is showing so that people know that I'm black. Like I just I have to. There has to be some level of me that is always seen. Um, as as a mechanism of literal safety. And so th- there's just a way that I live and differences that I um, have to do and accommodate and um, that are way different than other people. And that um, to have that experience constantly refuted and gaslighted and um, have someone, I mean, even like throw scripture at you um, to, you know, wow. tell you not to live in fear is utterly, I mean, I cannot tell you how debilitating that is. Um, and even, even as a, like, I'm a very headstrong person. I'm a very, I'm going to tell it like it is. 
um, and not not really hold back um, for the sake of anyone's comfort. But uh, to to constantly hear that, um, it literally felt like a slap in the face. And I I went through, I mean, like three-ish, very probably four, like very hard months um, with uh, some very significant people in my life uh, who are no longer in my life anymore, um, just because it was not, it was not best for me to, uh, reside there. But it, um, it, it really did a, it really did a number on me, uh, truly, like truly. Um, but I also, through that experience, have also found like that, um, i will no longer sit at tables that have no intention of serving me. Like it's, it's not enough to have a place for me. If I'm not feasting like everyone else, I'm not sitting down. Like I will turn around and walk out. Um, I also, right. (laughs) Um, I know I'm like, I want to do it now. Um, (laughs) I also have a, uh, have really just cultivated this boldness um, and this, um, initiative, this courage, um, that I think I always had, I, I wholeheartedly, I believe I always had it. It just had to be unlocked, um, and unleashed. That's really what it was. And so, Mm. um, and I, I think that, um, I've also just feel so much freedom. Like I, I am not having to think about, um, or consider anyone else's, uh, perception of me, thought of me, um, or live through the live my life through the filter that is not um, my own, or like live my life through a filter of just like right. this is how I need to be, this is how I should be, this is da da da. Like there's there's no there's no need to put on any face. There's there's no need to uh, like fake it. There's not like I get to just be me for me, and it has been the absolute best. Like I mean experience that I don't know how long mm-hmm. like just ever and so it's so much more fun it's so much more freeing um it is it's amazing to be in an environment where you're just celebrated and honored and um you are just a part um I had to go through this whole uh, really from leaving the environment that I was in um just this whole experience of like not um, how do I word this? Really having to let go of the dream that I would ever have a quote unquote normal family, right? Like that normal white picket fence, mom, dad, blah, 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 all this stuff, yada, yada, yada. Um, and, uh, it was in the letting go of that dream and the leaving from that environment that I actually found that I have the most beautiful family ever known to man like I, it is just it is yeah. incredible absolutely incredible um and uh, I do believe that it is entirely a reflection of communal care as well and so right. I have like four different house keys on my keychain um yeah. and uh, I can go to any of these people's houses and just go eat um, go have dinner, um, at any time. If I ever need a place to sleep, if I'm just driving and I need some water, like whatever I, I can go, I can do anything. Um, and I can just be a part and it's, it is an invitation that's open and I'm just there. 
Um, and I am just realizing that I have like, gosh, just so many different families um, and so many different people in my life who are really just about me and like who love me for me, like mm-hmm. no expectations, no, um, they, I mean, they're not wanting anything in return. Like it, they just love me because it's me and they love me for me. Uh, and that is, it's the most beautiful thing. And I'm so honored to be and be able to be a part of so many different families and to, um, to have those keychains and to be invited to like these homes and these people and their kids and, uh, like, I'm, I mean, whenever I get married, I'm going to have the biggest amount of girls. And then, like, and it's just, it's going to be, I don't even know what we're going to do. Party. Uh, there's, um, a lot, there's a lot to love. I mean, you, you have so much love to offer. And I'm really glad that you are stepping into your own. And I personally, and I've, I've really wrestled with this a lot. Um, obviously my family is not conventional. My family was built very unconventionally. Um, the lifestyle that I live is very unconventional. Um, and I've struggled a lot with kind of identifying, uh, I'm at a crossroads, right? I could either relentlessly pursue the nuclear family, AKA like try to find a partner right here and now try to get the white picket fence right here and now, or I could continue on the trajectory that I'm on right now and like leave into the realm of just more untraditional fostering teenagers, um, making a you know place at the table for people that are vulnerable, making community with those of our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness. These are all things that just add the layers of unconventionality that are already so apparent when you look at my family being a young single mom of two adopted children um, and queer as well, you know, and so there's just so many layers to that. But my point to all of that is that I've been wrestling a lot with what the what the heck is the nuclear family? Where did it come from? What are the origins of the nuclear family? And, you know, how has it worked and how has it not worked? And the more that I've probed into, you know, the deep diving, the history of all of that, I've realized that the mom, dad, dog, white picket fence, American dream is it's not how we are biologically hardwired. It's not how we have been, you know, set to perform throughout history when we talk about, you know, our tribal origins and our origins of, you know, it being in community as hunter-gatherers and as nomads and, you know, all of that. And so there's really no biological or historical reason why the nuclear family works. And there's no evidence to support that it works. As a matter of fact, a lot of the social issues that we see now in society they exist at the intersection of the uh, the creation of the nuclear family and the um, impressional, like the way that they are pushing the nuclear family on society. Because the nuclear family, it's also not very biblical. Um, we, you know, we hear about pods, we hear about nuclear families within the Bible, but we also hear about their pervasive support networks, their community care networks. We also see a lot of unconventional family types in, in the Bible. Um, and so it's really just, it. Do, I don't really totally understand it, except through the lens of American consumerism and through the lens of, you know, all of the capitalistic, um, you know, I'm thinking back to the 60s and the 70s and 
the boom and the microwave and the white picket fence and the selling of the idea that this is how families needed to be, um, that's when obviously we had nuclear families a long time before the 70s. But this over, I guess, what do you call it? Um, when you pressure something so much, this overemphasis on needing the nuclear family as the only as the only pillar or example of what could work is when things really started to get messed up. And that's when we started to trade our empathy and our drive for our neighbors for capitalism. And what we got out of that was exactly what we were talking about in the beginning of this episode, which is why it's such a perfect you know, segue, is we got this breeding ground for apathy where people were so focused on getting the two kids and the dog and the white picket fence and on getting the microwave and on making it look a certain way that they forgot how to love their neighbor and they forgot how to be available for the, their, you know, neighbor experiencing homelessness for their neighbor who is a foster youth for their neighbor who is struggling with mental health, whatever. All of these things are completely incompatible with, the American dream. Because when your whole goal is to pursue the American dream and your whole indoctrination at your core of your being, you might be a really solid human who feels a twinge of guilt when you drive by the homeless person on the street and don't stop and offer them support, right? You might feel that twinge, but you've been indoctrinated your entire life by the American dream to push that twinge down, to separate them as the other, And that is where we have this apathy. And that's where we have this incongruency with um, biblical teachings and with, you know, just our our inherent behavioral drive to help our neighbor because it's been muted and it's been completely suppressed as we pursue the American dream. All that to say, fuck the nuclear family. (laughs) And I do cuss, so I can say that. And it's not that it doesn't, work. It's not that nuclear family should be, you know, abolished. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that the the world is bigger than the nuclear family and every single family type is valid. Does that make sense? Yes. 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 Um family really it just it looks different. It really does. I I do I have been, um, as I've been reading the Bible, I have noticed that as well, especially just as family has been such a thing in my life. And 2020, I've I've looked at and have seen. And so I really like appreciate that you brought that up just because it is, um, it's, it is interesting, the emphasis upon nuclear families, uh, because it, I, almost feels as if we've lost this idea of, we lost this whole idea of communal care, I mean, across the board. But I do feel that because of that emphasis, we've lost it. We've lost the ability to care and like, you know, it takes a village to raise a child and yada, yada, yada. Um, but are, are we thinking about the child who is in foster mm-hmm. care? Are we thinking about well, the child who's homeless? Too. Are we thinking about, you know? Um, how, how, how do you... You come into the world, you don't ask to be a part of a family that's dysfunctional. You don't ask to be a part of a family that isn't nuclear. And then we put the weight of the burden on you to try to find a nuclear family and the weight of trauma 
of feeling like you failed as an individual because it wasn't handed to you on a silver platter. And then not to mention the fact that most nuclear families are dysfunctional anyways. I mean, one in two marriages ends in divorce. And so you see extreme cases of, you know, as as a foster parent, and I'm sure as a former foster youth, we've both seen the extreme cases of nuclear family dysfunctionality. But just talk about the day-to-day, most of my peers, I don't know about you, my peers in the church, my peers in public school, their families weren't all that high-functioning either. And because they didn't have any community care, because every nuclear family is for themselves, right? And they're all, you know, I want to have the best house and I want to have the best fence and the best car and the best job. So even if they are quote unquote friends, it's very hard for communities like that to actually have genuine connection that isn't at least at some level, a a competition of sorts. And how can you truly love your neighbor's child as your own when you're competing with them? That's so interesting. I love all of this. Um, I, I, do you have a question? Okay, so just thinking through this whole thing, I'm I'm thinking about the various families and th- people who are in my life, right? So I'm like, I'm thinking about the people whose houses that I can walk into and eat mm-hmm. and partake and yada, yada, yada. What, what does that look like in a on on a large scale like how how do you see communal care happening if it could happen if we could just snap our fingers and it happened like what would that look like I love the ideological answer to that question because ideologically we can dream and we can have these you know very high high hopes for for the world but of course on a practical implemented level there are a lot of practicalities um, and there's a lot of dysfunction that you're going to see and so nothing can be perfect when it's not ideological right um, but from an ideological perspective of course we would want to see um, First and foremost, obviously, everything begins and ends with education. And I don't just mean in a formal institutionalized setting, but that does have to play a a huge role because unfortunately, um, families, they rely on the public school system and kinder care and preschool and everything else to rear their children in many cases. Um, Is that dysfunctional? Yes. Does it work? No. But for that reason, we need to really cut the crap out of the curriculum that is not serving anyone. Half of it is a lie anyways. I mean, you and I grew up thinking that Christopher Columbus founded America. Like what? Um, There's so much that is absolutely incompatible. Like we don't need to learn half the stuff that we learn in elementary school. Half the stuff that we learn in middle and high school is filler information and the standardized baseline, it all needs to go. And so I think first and foremost, we need to stop from a public school perspective, putting such an emphasis on these ridiculous standardized testing things and start putting more emphasis on emotional regulation and on rearing children to be empathetic to be aware of who they are in society and what it means to be a human and to live the human experience. And of course, I'm not talking about like a radical 
we don't do tests anymore. We don't do math anymore. No, I'm just talking about the fact that the reality is we all look back on our schooling experience, no doubt, and think about hours and hours and hours collectively that were spent doing nothing or doing things that really didn't leave a lasting impact on us, right? And so from an education perspective, which is probably one of a 10-part thing that you would need in society to see real sweeping community change, from an education perspective, you want to see our educators trauma-informed. You want to see our educators with a thorough understanding of mental health, of different family styles, with a thorough bias training so that they don't have racial bias, they don't have nuclear family bias, you know, where they don't have any of that. And that it's expected of public teachers to not carry their religious bias, their, you know, homophobia, anything into the the setting where they're rearing these children up, right? So that's a huge component is being better about educating our educators. And then second is implementing those educators with the material to teach people empathy, to teach students empathy. If we can teach fractions, if we can teach all of these different things, a completely robust change of our history curriculum is also very important because our history curriculum that is taught in school right now is built on the white savior complex and it's built on white fragility. And so until our students truly understand, until American students truly understand the way that this country was founded, the social inequity, the racism, the horrible colonization, the slavery, and until they really, really are forced to, in a school setting, sit with that and understand it and learn it, I don't think that we can breed true empathy and Unless we're teaching what has happened in the past, we are destined to repeat history in the future. And so that on an education level, and then not to mention the fact that schools are places where children should, in my opinion, be able to do their laundry, should, in my opinion, be able to get three meals a day, should, in my opinion, be able to get school food from home so that they can, for home rather, for mom, dad, and siblings, so that there is never any food insecurity. Because food insecurity is a fictitious, made-up American bologna pie sandwich. It is not true. We throw away 40% of our food into a landfill in America, meaning that 40% of the food that we harvest, that we create, that we put into grocery stores, gets thrown into a landfill. And if that's the case, there is absolutely no way that one in four children can be experiencing food insecurity. So it's not a matter of, do we have enough food? We have way too much food. It's a matter of a distribution issue. And so we need to use schools and churches and community hubs as these stable foundational places where people can rely on food. And I'm not talking about like pop up, oh yeah, this week on Monday, you can get you know a bag of oranges. I'm talking about consistent, consistent, reliable for a 12-year period throughout your whole education, food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because there's no reason that people shouldn't have access to that if they want it, right? And so you take away food insecurity, you educate the children in schools, the educators aren't contributing to the issues, and then also, and then from that, you're breeding up a new generation of empathetic, well-fed, well-thought students. You put them into society and they diversify the marketplace. 
They diversify the society. And these are individuals who are not taught to fear their neighbors, who are actively taught anti-racism, who are actively taught to work against their biases. I can't even tell you how many people I know who have freaking master's degrees and they're bigots. They have master's degrees. They have PhDs and they're racist and they don't think they're racist. They're the type of racist that think they're woke. You know what I mean? You know the type, Mm -hmm. but they are micro racist and that's almost worse than being a macro overt racist. And I think that the reality is like one of my silly dreams that I have, talk about what you talk about with your therapist. I talk about this with my therapist. One of my dreams is that instead of requiring students to take psych 101 in college, because we all took psych 101, um, that there would be some sort of like a mental health 101 and an anti-racism or like a social bias 101 that would be required for graduation from any university. And that that would be um, a program that was just integrated into, infiltrated into every single university in America, and that it was a requirement. It was a basic requirement. Because why do we require such stupid, silly, you know, in psychology, all we remember about that is what Freud, we all like, what do we take away from psychology 101? Yeah. Freud. Um, but what if we were teaching something as diverse? What if we were requiring a, a level of expectation? What if we were putting a grade on your biases before we were releasing you into the workplace? And I think that that is something that, I mean, again, this is ideological, so you can't just implement this overnight. But if we start to really, really change people's perspective, change people's biases, that's where you're going to see community care take care of itself. On an immediate level, I have other answers and I could go for hours. But on a on a long-term level, there is no solution without implementing some sort of a anti-bias work into the foundation of our education from preschool on, which means that our educators have to not be biased. Our educator, and I don't, I don't just mean racially biased, I mean bias on every single level. Bias towards mental illness, bias towards different family dynamics, bias towards food inequity, social inequity. Um, we have to start understanding that people are coming to the table, the table being school, the table being church, community, wherever, And they're all coming from different places and they all have different genetic hardwirings, different, you know, social upbringings that allow them to contribute in X, Y, and Z way. And so, yeah, you have to dream big. You have to believe that um, it starts from the basis of education. And then I truly, truly believe that when you send a generation of students who have been raised at that level into society, that community care will take care of itself because nobody, nobody raised like that is going to be apathetic towards a homeless neighbor. Nobody. Because I'll tell you right now, my best friend in the whole world, who was actually last the last guest on um, the podcast, Maddie Chiba, we talk about in the last podcast how she was raised in what she calls, for lack of a better phrase, hippie school, um, and how she went to a charter school that put a huge emphasis on empathy and a lack, did not put an emphasis on standardized testing and all of that. And she is someone who is extremely empathetic to the point where it's in who she is. And she can't pass, she's a a preschool teacher at a homeless shelter. um, And everything that in our conversation, in our dialogue, in our relationship comes back to conversations about social inequity, conversations about community change. If we released a million Maddies into the world, we're good to go. We have the foster care crisis covered and then some, right? 
And so I really do believe that if we're breeding empathy in people, that the community care will take care of itself because we're going to be breeding people who are inclined to want to do community care. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, yes, yes. One one thread I, I have seen um, that I'm just seeing from everything that you were just saying to and within my own life. And just as I'm like looking at, you know, and assessing all the things and everything is that, uh, people straight up, like it is, it's baffling to me, the, um, amount of people who walk around unaware of anyone um, who looks different from them, who lives differently from them, who is below them, who has to think differently than they, they do. Um, all of that. And like people truly do not know until they know. Right. And, and we're not forcing people to know, which sounds yeah. really aggressive, but it's like, what else do you do except for just force them to know? Because it's so disheartening that they just don't understand. Yeah. I feel like 2020 uh, gave everyone an opportunity to do so. Mm, yeah you're right I I just don't believe that it was taken um and for everyone and so because for me right like I I am um I grew up in out of foster care homeless um I ate off of food stamps for most of my childhood and I have had benefits everything like from the state the state because I aged out of foster care I have you know, college, um, I have a tuition waiver letter, all of that, all of that, um, cumulatively, like the benefits that, that have been given to me literally helped me get here. And so I have an entirely, and I mean, I've gone to food banks. I've the whole, like I've, my family has had utilized every program within the DFW area, like a thousand percent. I can say that with full confidence, Right. And so, of course, I look at it way differently and I, I, I look at things way differently than someone who, um, I mean, grew up semi like middle class, typical, quote unquote, childhood, um, you know, maybe moved a couple times, that that sort of thing. And so just just the the I think, I mean, empathy, empathy is is the big thing. Um, and I don't know, just the. People are only willing to see to the extent of what keeps them comfortable. Um, right. And I think it's, it's the, I don't know, there's, there's something to be said about that, that, um, that lack of comfort. Um, and uh, because I've never been comfortable in my life, like, that just has not been a thing for me. Um, and honestly, I hope I do not experience it. Security, yes, I do want to be secure. And I believe that I am secure um, in various areas. But comfort, no, I want to stay uncomfortable because it is in the uncomfortable that I have gotten to see. And I do get to see all of these different perspectives. Like I, I look at the homeless guy on the street differently because that was me. Like I, I look at people within um, who live in Salvation Army or live at the Salvation Army who are within programs, et cetera, all of that type of stuff differently because that was me. I look at children in foster care differently because that was me. I look at people who 
Um, you know, there's there's this there is this whole thing on Twitter going around about how people who are on food stamps um, and uh, dressed quote unquote nicely. Um, and oh my god, yeah, I yes, and just just these whole uh, just these ideas and things that are um, perpetuated and then continuously cultivated by society, media, et cetera, whomever, um, that, that people have of others, uh, is, is interesting. Uh, it's so interesting because the, you know, the way that one individual lives their life, right? Like how they, um, how they view everything, all of that, how they make sense of the world. That is comfort like like that that is their comfort that that is their sense of safety and so anything that that is not a part of that that is not within that framework not within that um not within their uh like level of understanding as as life as how they know it is not going to like of course all their defenses and everything is going to go up right like I mean this is with everything it's not even just like limited to race or uh, income or um, immigration or anything of that nature. That's with everything. And so it really is like, it really does take this. Okay. I'm noticing that I'm feeling uncomfortable about something that was said. Am I going to explode and say, no, 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 no. Like this, like that, that doesn't apply to me. Am I going to apply this like exceptionalism rule because it does not pertain to me? Um, Or am I going to just take a second and just listen or ask more questions just to be able to try and understand no matter the, the discomfort and just allow your mind to, and I say your mind, that sounds so like, um, I don't know. sounds so weird. Um, but just to allow your perspective, your eyes, like to be opened and to to see differently um to see that someone may look at something differently than you do and that that is not a bad thing it's different because you are two different people who may have had two different entirely different experiences and so yes you're you're going to see things that the other doesn't and vice versa um and it's it is it's interesting to me just how how much um i have i've seen that and at all of the different ways I feel like I learned a lot in 2020 Mm. comfort breeds apathy and 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 comfort breeds complacency and those are two very very dangerous places to be I also find it fascinating fascinating that we as a society can regulate someone on food stamps for dressing their best or for choosing to splurge on an item that makes them feel pretty, like maybe getting their nails done or their hair done or whatever. And yet we are silent to the point of we are not just silent, we are actively protecting billionaires from keeping their billions of dollars. We have no issue not regulating billionaires and not saying, hmm, that seems ethically immoral to have billions of dollars. Hmm, it seems really weird that, you know, even though I shop on Amazon every day and support an individual who could snap his fingers and end food insecurity, who could snap his fingers and in a day without having to change his lifestyle a percent could end so many different facets of suffering and could start the early process of integrating things like education reform and generational reform and all of that 
in my opinion, and I'm going to be labeled as an extremist for saying this, and obviously you don't have to agree with me. We're just having a chat, chit chat. Um, I think that billionaires are low key serial killers because they have so much that they could be doing with their money and they could be spending 5% of their money on these social issues and on serious social reform, but them choosing not to and choosing to do things like rack in billions of dollars in a couple weeks time. That to me is like, there's blood on your hands. How can you know the, the impact of what your money could do? And, and know that I'm not asking you to get, you know, give up all your money and become the Buddha, Bill Gates. I'm not asking you to live off the land and give up everything and you don't have a house to live in. I'm not even asking you to change your lifestyle. I'm just simply asking you to share your assets in a way that we could see and, and encourage your billionaire buddies to do the same, that we could see real change to the world. And in my opinion, it's super scary that people can be eerily silent about the, the amount of blood on these individuals' hands, but are so quick to say, why does that individual not afford food that wants to get her nails done? Like, what is the disconnect that you can regulate a poor person's financial flow, but not a rich person's? And the only difference, really, is that there is this American dream in their mind that maybe one day they'll be rich too which we know isn't true. We know that less than 1% of people will ever experience that sort of wealth. But the American dream has essentially indoctrinated us and gotten us drunk on the idea that if we stay in line and work hard enough and revere these individuals enough that maybe we'll become them. And that's why they're untouchable. And it's so disgusting and disturbing that the dichotomy exists in society where we're shaming individuals for trying to feel and look their best, even when they are suffering. And yeah, I just, I don't understand it at all. Like, what's it to you what the homeless person does with the dollar that you give them? What's it to you if they spend it on methamphetamine or if they spend it on a water bottle? It's not your business. And honestly, it's their creator, it's their maker, it's their soul that they have to make right with. And so I really don't think that we should be putting tabs on you know, oh, this person has to spend their money a certain way. It's ridiculous. And also another extremely controversial statement, money is fake. So what is it to you, what they do with their monopoly money? How is it going to remotely affect what you do with yours? (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) I don't know if you're like, no way, or if you're like, yes way. I don't know either. I, I'm, I know. So here, here's the thing. Here's the thing with me. I, I am a very deep thinker, like very deep thinker. I believe there's complexities even with, with all the things. Um, and, uh, I, um, I'm a slow processor as well. Like I'm, I'm a crock pot. Things got to cook. Um, and so just because I am so, very careful with my words um Mm -hmm. and not even careful I'm intentional with my words because there's nothing like I'm I'm not careful um just because I am so intentional with my words so I'm genuinely processing uh, everything that you're saying um yes it's interesting it is really interesting that uh just with I feel like TikTok and Gen Z 
man, yeah, they they are going to um they're they're going to do something great. They're going to do oh, some really great they things. There's been a lot um, of stuff yeah, done. they have. Uh, and um, I I I don't know. They're they are so incredibly aware um of so much of they're deeply aware of the other uh always in all the different situations um and contexts and very much um about the betterment of all versus the betterment of self and i'm talking at a collective level not an individual level because that cannot be that's that's not applicable here obviously right uh, but it is it's I don't know. It's just Gen Z, the the TikTok generation. They they have they have more power than I think we will ever realize. Yeah, um, my sister generation. Well, I'm Gen Z too, but I'm like the oldest Gen Z you can be. Like I'm the cusp. Um, what year were you born? I don't. I sometimes I'm, I. I'm 96. What year were you I'm born? 98. So, because on some things I am Gen Z, some things I'm three years younger than me? Yeah. What? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I did not know that. How old did you think I was? I thought you were like 26, 27. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I turned 23 next month. (laughs) Oh my God. No, that went well over my head. Yeah, I'm a child. I just graduated. She just graduated with her bs in what was it something something program integrative studies integrative studies um so you've had the opportunity to look at that through a lens of it you know science (laughs) um it wasn't a ba and so you have you know a lot of critical thinking skills i'm sure i would hope (laughs) to share i do very Um, much you know Yes, I also I look at everything. This another thing. I I look at everything through the lens of trauma and and with the yeah. lens and with the attention of trauma care because everyone and their mother has experienced trauma. I promise everyone you. Um, yeah. Twenty twenty was trauma. So and that was a collective trauma. Just the sudden lack and loss of structure and everything changing for everyone um, at a moment's notice and then just this constant not knowing um and really just like we don't really know what's coming tomorrow masks no masks I mean all of that stuff um and then to then be in it long enough to where it it has somewhat like we're settling into it where it's now somewhat become um something of a normality for all it's a collective trauma like everyone has experienced trauma um, and so there are too many people who downplay, who downplay trauma. Um, it's so crazy. That was like a huge chunk of the last episode. When I was talking with Maddie, we talked a lot about trauma and and its lack of, um, I guess, it doesn't get the airtime it deserves, trauma. Yes. And it doesn't, you know, it, people yes. don't talk enough about it. And it's so versatile. And people don't realize that. Are you familiar with the ACEs? Um yes. Yes, yes, I'm well-versed. Yes. yes. Oh, yes. So we talked about that in the last episode and we were laughing because we were saying how it, you can't just say ACEs test and, and have everybody, you know, know like the Enneagram, what it is. And we were wishing in the last episode that there would be a shift in like focusing on the Enneagram and start focusing on your ACEs scores because everybody has it. And 
even that sort of a world where everybody was acutely aware of their ACEs scores and of the impact that their, you know, scores might have on their biases, on their social emotional health, everything might just make people a little bit more empathetic to their neighbor. But Mm -hmm. people are so afraid to look inward at that sort of thing. And to say like, hey, I might have these biases, I might have these ways that I do things and function because of my trauma, um, because it it requires this unboxing of self that is not in any way, shape or form um, really something that can be done until you're willing to put your fragility to the side. And with so much of life, um, especially the Americanized experience, we are really taught, um, I don't think it's intentionally taught, but I think it's just through the lens of what we're taught to hold our fragility close and to value other people's opinions of us so closely that we then internalize those opinions and and kind of make them our opinions of ourselves. And so when we are so quick to judge ourselves and so quick to hate ourselves and so quick to um, just want to be perfect and want to be in pursuit of whatever, you know, is expected of us in society, it's very hard for us to do a complete deconstruction, a complete unboxing of self. And so it is hard. But I mean, even though I'm someone that, and this is no surprise to you, you've known me long enough now, someone that, you know, I do have very strong, strong opinions that to some would seem extreme, I think that the core, the ones that would make you say, hmm, I need to think about this. I need to let the crock pot simmer on this. Mm-hmm. I think that at the end of the day, when you take the heart of what I'm saying, you can see oh, yes. 100% yes. that this is, it's, it's about the other. It's about that recognition of the other that you're describing right now. So I think there is that connectability um, even as you start to think about like these huge, massive, like, um, extremist ideas that I have, um, it's all in love. And I have a lot of people that stay following me surprisingly. So even though they strongly disagree with my politics and my worldviews and everything else, because I think that I make it very clear that everything that comes out of my mouth is all in love. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yes to all of that goodness um i i that's so that says a lot um about the people who follow you even though they disagree with you because oh, yeah. it is, it is, it's one thing to to place yourself right i mean with our phones we have the power to choose who we connect with right and who who we listen to the voices blah 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 it's one thing to place yourself within echo chamber it's another to allow voices and intentionally um not even allow but really choose to um Mm -hmm. have voices and have people within your life who uh look differently believe differently live differently all of that stuff um because that's i mean that's something that is constantly like that's challenging you to think um and to think critically about like you know why what do i believe why do i believe what i believe all of that kind of stuff i'm i'm someone who learns um i learn by listening um and uh processing and then i like kind of form my opinion like i i like to listen to all of the sides and all the perspectives and everything and then, like, I'm I'm the last person to speak at any group thing, always, always. Right. 
I want to hear what everyone has to say. Well, what, okay. You know, they thought about this thing from this way. Someone thought about this from this angle. Um, I'm, I mean, like I'm looking at it from an aerial point of view. That's kind of how I look at everything. Yes. I 100% see that about you. And I think that to a degree, I do that too, which is why I allow for a bit more space than other people who are as strongly opinionated as I am um, for other opinions in my space. But I think too, and I don't know how to phrase this properly, but I think too, we don't, unfortunately, especially like I don't want to say I'm going to get I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but like not with you, but with anyone that's listening or somebody that's going to take this the wrong way. But there is obviously an alt-right and that would be the people that are like racist and people that are extremely bigoted and extremely political, politically conservative to a deficit. And then the other thing, this is the the controversial thing, is there's also an alt-left where people are so extremely divisive in their liberalism that there's really no point to trying to meet a middle ground. And I think that 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 alt-left liberalism that I'm describing, it exists in its own echo chamber because it exists so far in an ideological setting, meaning that a lot of people who believe this or engage in this type of politics are people who they see the other and they care for the other deeply However, they themselves are so positioned in such a place of privilege that they don't understand that so much of life is about that middle area and about working towards progress. I think America got our first flavor of working towards um, progress in deciding to collectively vote for Joe Biden, even though most of us didn't like Joe Biden. Um, And I wish, I really do wish that we would have gotten a more progressive candidate And I believe that we're more capable of a more progressive candidate in the future than we maybe even believe. But my point is that we don't hold a lot of space for these individuals like the ones that are following me and their stories and the way that their opinion has been shaped and molded because we're so quick to judge and assume that they don't have the same exact mindset that I have, which is the mindset of doing everything in love. Um, but they just have this completely different upbringing, this completely different hardwiring, and they are trying to get, they're trying to arrive at the same place that I am, but they're using all of the collective resources and life experience and skill set that they've been taught for however many years that they've lived before finding my profile on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. And so anyways, I just, I think that there's a lot of divisiveness on both sides of the political arena. And I think that both sides of the political arena in their far corners are simply people who are holding too tightly to ideology to let go and actually start holding on to people. Does that make sense? Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah, people really like definitive things. Like they like things that they can break down, make sense of, even if it logically doesn't make sense because it's safe. There is far, the thing about being uncomfortable and constantly challenging yourself, like remaining moldable, malleable, et cetera, and all different areas, facets, everything of life is that you have the, um, you have the ability and really like the wherewithal to understand that everything is much more gray than we actually believe. Like (laughs) it's so much more gray 
And it is not bad. It is not bad at all. Um, because you, you cannot, like, whenever it comes to people, like, you, you cannot, like, place them within these collocated boxes. Like, people are going to constantly surprise you. And people are going to do things that are out of their box and um, just out out of the way that you make sense of them um, or make sense of things. And it's, we really, like, we just got to be a part of that. Yeah. Um, And allow ourselves to let go of this idea that we can hold tightly to anything. um, Because it's really not, like, it's it's not necessarily possible. Like That's why... I'm such a big advocate of breeding empathy early. I don't think we need to politically indoctrinate children in schools. I don't think that we need to do anything crazy like that. I'm not, you know, I'm not as um, far left thinking as people may think that I am in a lot of arenas. Um, But I do think that when you breed empathy from the get-go, that it's very, very hard for people to turn off the other right? To turn off the suffering of the other. Whereas at this point in time, I really do think that we've bred the opposite of empathy in many of our social circles, in many of our education settings. Um, Because why? Because again, we've put so much emphasis on who's the best student, who got the best test score, who has the best dress, who, you know, everything in our communities at an educational level, when our children are in their, you know, emotional infancy is bred for them to feel like they're in a competition down to freaking homecoming queen and king down to football games. Everything is who's the best who wins. And when you breed that without also breeding a duality of empathy and teamwork and togetherness and putting all of those things on the back burner in the spirit of competition how in the world do you expect these individuals to grow up and become adults who care deeply about the other? Hmm. Yep. Wow. And like when you teach someone their whole life how to win and how to beat and how to be the best and how to get the best house and then show it off for all to see but not invite anyone inside, what makes you think that they're going to give you a key for your keychain? When the goal should be raising children who give out their keys, not who own the keys, but just to show it off. Hmm. Hmm. It, uh, it really, it really amazes me um, just how people can like genuinely uh, just live life with their head in the sand. Yeah, but I, I just, especially after 2020, I just, my brain, I cannot grasp that where I'm like, ever everything got a microphone in 2020. Everything. Yes, it did. did. Like it was so, so, so loud. We were, we were in our homes, like (laughs) with nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever done like a thought experiment where you've tried to put yourself in the shoes of someone who you really disagree with or feel like their head's in the sand? Oh, yes. Yeah. My, I'm, um, I've never heard it phrased as a thought experiment. (laughs) Interesting. I was like, wait, what is she about to tell me? Um, No, it's really has been, it's been this, 
Um, I that that's just me in general. Like I I do try to um live my life by putting myself in other people's shoes and trying to understand where they're coming from what's my enneagram number Mm -hmm. six what is that you know um i so here's the thing with me and enneagram i love it i really do it is not the flipping bible like it isn't no Um, no and And the the names, I'm I'm hesitant to say the names because the names themselves that. have like a connotation. Yeah, so, I just looked it up right now. No, I just wanted uh, to know for the sake of that little bit. It's not your defining characteristic by any means, but it does speak to, you know, who you are. Now that I know, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I identify with six wing five though i definitely see some seven stuff so um oh yeah i i think i'm really um you know a bird needs both wings to fly but i definitely lean heavily on seven but i i very much see my five and just the, the academic like researcher um yeah. understand everything that type that type right of thing. right right so, but Yes, I I appreciate the Enneagram very much, very, very much. It helps me a lot in counseling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great tool, not unlike so many others, like the one we were talking about, the ACEs and all of that. Um, anything that can, you know, put words or, or something to your, put consumable content on the huge vastness that is the individual human experience is mm-hmm. helpful, but I think you have to be cautious about it. Um, and, you know what I do appreciate about the Enneagram, though? I appreciate that it looks at motivations rather than the behaviors, because so many behaviors are symptoms. They're not actually the thing that we need to be looking at as ways to identify or um, make sense of our quote-unquote personality, like who we are right. for. Okay. So. I, yeah. No, I totally agree. I have a couple questions for you as we round out this episode that I want to get into it sounds like, do you think it would be safe to say that it took the rubber meeting the road of the 2020 surge of BLM for you to really, I guess, come into your own with advocating for your individualism and fighting for your feast at the table? Do you think that's fair to say? Oh, a thousand percent. Yes. So what do you feel like going into 2021 as you arise into this new year is awake inside of you that wasn't awake last year? And how do you plan to, I guess, go forward now that those pieces of you are awake? I genuinely, I mean, I believe it's what everything that I was talking about earlier and just in the ways that I changed as far as no longer sitting at places or going to um, uh, being seated at places that serve me. Um, No, uh, no longer like, making myself smaller, minimizing myself in any form or fashion for anyone else's comfort at all. Um, And uh, being and bringing my whole self to any and all things that I do. um, And just living in that, um, I don't know, like just being free to be me with no with no expectations, like qualms, nothing. And I, I think that just going into this year, um, I just think I'm going to have a lot of fun this year. Like truly, I I really I really think I'm going to have a lot of fun. Just as I, just as I transition into working and um, starting a full time job and 
all of that stuff. Like I, I just, I just believe it's going to be a year of fun where I'm just going to discover more things about myself that I did not know. Um, and, uh, just begin to process and dream, uh, just dreaming. I think my capacity to dream, um, is a little more because I am now more secure. Um, I, I feel like I've lived in survival mode for most of my life. Um, and so there's just been this whole mm-hmm. becoming and that's really started whenever I went to counseling four or five years ago. And, um, that has now turned into thriving. And so I, I feel like I'm beginning to just see that. And so, yeah, um, yeah, I I think it's going to be amazing. Huge on a micro level. I have experienced, well, on my own macro level, because I don't like to diminish anyone's suffering, right? We're all in our own own suffer bubbles. (laughs) But in my, I too have experienced many, many years of living you know, in the, that survival mode. Um, and it, it is a completely different world to be living when it's no longer for surviving. It's for enjoying the life that is in front of you. And um, so I'm so excited for you. And I know that, you know, we talked a little bit before this episode. So I just want to preface anyone listening that you're okay with me asking you what I'm about to ask you because we don't in this space and just in my in my general you know, I don't want to say my teachings, but I definitely am not someone that thinks it's okay to put labor on black women. And so, um, I am very careful with the friendships that I've created and not asking like, Oh, you know, teach me this Ambo or anything like that, because that's obviously my work to do, but because race has come up and because I know that you've shared that you were an open book for this episode, I love like any takeaway that you have for, um, individuals that are looking or seeking to be some sort of an ally, specifically maybe in the church, because I know that a lot of people who listen are white women in the church, um, or just, I guess, white women in general, like that are, that are seeing a lot of what you're describing in this episode. Do you have anything that you wish that you could have said to maybe the individuals that you're no longer connected with or anything like that, that I guess in, in for you wish you would have had the foresight to say to them yes oof this is a good question so i have a few things one subvert your feelings like they your feelings i promise you like you will cry you'll feel all the things about you know like i cannot believe that it's been like this for so long and blah 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 like the shock that you're experiencing right now it's not a shock to me it's not a shock to any black person like save the tears for later. Um, because whenever that, that moment happens for you, uh, as a white woman, as a white individual, um, and you are expressing that and sharing that with a black person, I'm, it's utterly exhausting and it's debilitating because we have to now, like, we are now in the position of comforting you, um, as you're coming to realize something that has always been a reality for us. Wow. Um, Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, And that's a very hard thing to do. um, But experiencing and, you know, living through racism is also hard. So choose your heart. Um, Not really. Actually, I hate that statement. So I I really I don't like defaming. um, What is it called? Hobby Lobby? We're just in Hobby Lobby like, that's this, that's this. (laughs) 
my gosh. It's so gross. It just, ugh, like I'm cringing. I ugh, hate that stuff. Um, Yes. And then the, uh, gosh, and that live, laugh, love. Ugh, if I see that one more time in someone's house, I'm like, oh my word. Flowers in her hair. She leaves sprinkles and I don't, or no, it's sparkles and sunshine wherever she goes. I'm like, Ooh, okay, that's cool. That's cute. I really, really appreciate that. Um, the other thing that I would say is to, uh, is to uh, follow people who you uh, may vehemently disagree with mm-hmm. um, on all the different spectrum side, everything. Um because it's it's so it's so vital i i think and even with with instagram and with facebook you know social media these days i think you are you are able to in following these different people you are able to also get a glimpse of who that individual is as a person and able to understand their perspectives um where they come from the context of which they're coming from all of that and i think what what is uh and what could be very pivotal for um someone would would just be to get a glimpse of that um for sure and the uh the last thing is to and this is the other thing i i don't know how to say this in a way that's just like you know honoring of of the other like who would be the other in the situation but you need to be in relationships with people who do not look like you who do not live like you you need to be watching shows um, and movies and things like that with people who don't look like you, who don't live like you, um, of various cultures, every like just represented, various lifestyles representative, um, various uh, beliefs, everything, all that represented. It matters very, very much. Um, and to not do so, honestly, is so ridiculously exclusive. Um, and uh in my book, no one's exclusive. I'm, I'm very much, uh, like it is my heart that everyone feels included, safe, heard, seen, honored, um, and cherished for who they are. That is how I live my life. Um, and I, I think that in us not doing that and people not doing that is a disservice to, to the people that you live around. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the other is only the other if we don't do all those things that you just described, right? And so I think that you talk about like honoring the other and all of that. Well, in the event that we were doing all of those things, there would be no other to have to respect or have to, you know, give. It's just one of those things where we have created the other in our own echo chambers, The other only exists because we choose to subject ourselves so specifically to our narrow view of what is normal and what is correct and valid. And it's very difficult, I think, in across all cultures, across all communities. Um, And we see it, you know, not just in the white community, although that's where it's very, very prevalent, but across um, different religions, different Christian denominations, you know, everything where there's this my way is the way. And your humanness is going to be um, called into question before I call into question or put to the side my way. And it's it's a devastating, um, I think, again, it's a devastating reminder of the way that we've been reared and cultured to hold material and ideology above people. 
And it's something that we just, (laughs) something's got to give. Right. And so I do hope, I do hope and, and ending this episode now in the next couple minutes here on a hopeful note that we started it on, you know, I do hope for the future. I do hope that more conversations and more dialogue like this will eventually uh, more talking about the bones and the exposure of the, the house that you're talking about, you know, more of that will eventually, hopefully, lead to a place where there is less othering and there is more value placed on the communal human experience other than the divisiveness of always having to be the superior, always having to be, you know, in the right, if that makes sense. Oh, yes. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. I also, too, just want to note that these conversations are possible, especially if you are someone who is in the church. Ellie and I, we, I mean, she is agnostic. I love Jesus. Um, Like, they're these conversations can happen. Like it is, I cannot tell you um, just the amount of, uh, I don't, just the things that you can learn and the things that you can see that are way different than maybe you have ever experienced, that you've ever seen, or that you've ever thought of that, that these conversations can actually happen with people you may or may not disagree with. Um, or may or may not believe the same thing, all of that stuff. Like it, it's possible to be civil. I adore Ellie. Um, And I'm not even saying like anything in regards to her being queer, her being a single mom, any of that. Uh, But I, and, and with that in relationship with my faith and I adore her. Like I love, love, love me some Ellie. Um, And so I, I really do. I, I think the world of you so, so glad I met you in 2020. Um, and I, I, I it was all bad. I really can't. It was hard, but sometimes, I mean, I, I really did. And I, I, I've said this multiple times with the caveat that I'm not trying to be insensitive to all that was lost and all that was to be grieved in 2020, but there was a lot of beauty from ashes. Talk about Mm -hmm. Hobby Lobby. Judy from Mm. after. (laughs) There was a lot. Um, A lot of Hobby Lobby happening. And I appreciate and love you so very much too. And I knew the moment that I met you, before I even had started the podcast, I was like, I want you to be on my podcast. I told you that. We were in a Zoom call together. You did. It's very rare for people to be able to convey their heart in such a beautiful way. And that's not to say that people are less valid in their feelings or in, you know, their lived experience if they can't convey their heart. But my prayer, my hope, whatever, you know, would be that you and those like you, I consider myself very much like you in this domain. So I guess I should say us and those like us would be people that can put words to the feelings that so many people have and struggle to convey, if that makes sense. Yes, that 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 right there is my hope in this life is to do that. I want to do that for any and all people. And I want to do that for um, because feelings are universal, like feeling like you are left out, feeling abandoned, feeling hurt, feeling shame, feeling guilt. Those are all universal, despite the circumstance, despite the instance in, when it, in which it has happened, the context, all of that. And so I, I do consider it to be such, such a deep privilege to be able to do that for um, 
for kids who are in foster care. I I am mm-hmm. I get to mm-hmm. now say the things that I wish I could have said um whenever I was in foster care or whenever oh. I was homeless or whenever I was like why do I not have a father? Like where is he? Um and just just the the um the all the questions all the everything like I I'm getting to speak for the younger embo and and then in turn mm-hmm. speaking for all of the young well, ones. Uh, and there are so many, you know, the human experience is such a, a diverse one and there's so many gifts and I'm, and we, neither of us have them all. And we can't all be singers. We can't all be beautiful artists or anything like that. But I think that there is an art to being able to convey language and there's so much power in that. And so when I met you and I saw that you and I both share the sentiment of, um, of, of language and being able to just use it to con- convey emotion and and propel conversations and all of that. I knew that I wanted to have you in this space and you're coming back. Um, you're coming back next month um, for a panel. Is that correct? I am. Yes. yes. So we're doing black in America um, part one, and I don't have my document on me, so I can't tell you when that is, but it's going to be in February and um, Embo is joining us for that panel. So you're going to hear more of her. I, I said to you, I would have you on as a co-host every week. So you're you always welcome really in this space. And I feel I like really do it. this, well, this conversation proves one thing. It proves that um, we're going to stop this episode in the next 90 seconds. And we still have so much to talk about, right? <laughs> oh, yes. I know that you and I could go, go, go. And it's, it's really beautiful to have the beginning of a friendship that I really do hope will last for years to come because we've got a lot more to talk about. And um, hopefully in theory, as we begin our big girl lives, um, being that I now find out that I'm your veteran, as we begin our big girl lives, hopefully we'll be able to see so much of what we dream of and talk about come to fruition during our friendship in the world and, and also in our friendship too. Yes. Wholeheartedly agree. I also love that you said big girl lives because I'm like, whenever I start my big girl job and everyone always laughs whenever I say that. And I'm like, I'm not kidding. <laughs> like, yes. It was so serious. Yes, that's what it is. That made me so happy. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Your big girl job and your big girl life and everything. It's all coming up bases. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so, so much, Embo. We will, um, pick right back up where we left off at some point in the near future. And of course, we'll have you back on here at no, um, nobody stands all next month. Um, if I had my life together, I'd have my calendar, but next month you guys will be hearing about it. Um, thank you so much for tuning in everybody. Embo, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.